When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to a new segment of our pod on our new channel. It's going to be the Sun Study with Steven. I'm the host here. This is me, Steven. Uh, you can, of course, find me on Twitter at StayTrueS.3. And these will kind of be just like little sub-segments where I fly solo or fly dolo, if you will, and just kind of dive into some of the weeds on the things that catch my attention. Uh, sometimes it might be things that might not have made our original pod where we tapping in tandem with myself and Ethan. Um, and other times it'll just be things that I kind of want to tackle a little bit more solo. That way it's not as um, time consuming for a consumer like you all, our pleasant listeners, uh, for us to tap in with. So um, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into my my son's study with Steven here as kind of like a part of our preview to the series for the Suns against the Clippers. So here in this first episode, we're going to be looking a little bit more so into matchups. Obviously, we don't have anything game by game to look at yet. So it's all perspective. But we're also looking at and kind of applying some of the context of the things that I've seen from the film that I've been watching. Of the Suns against the Clippers, but also Kevin Durant against the Clippers. Because he only played in one game against the Clippers this season, and it was as a Brooklyn Net. And there were some takeaways from that matchup. So. Without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into it all. So let's start with Kevin Durant. Um, the prized acquisition of the Suns from the trade deadline. Um, in terms of efficiency, on the season, he finished at 56% from the field. Specifically from three, he was at 40.4%. And from the free throw line, he was at 919 So he hit on the 50-40-90 mark yet again in his career, the golden standard for efficiency. Specifically as a son. He was at 57% from the field. From three, he was at 53.7%. And from the free throw line, he was at 83.3. So the efficiency is, I mean, clearly and abundantly still there. And the looks and the shot quality that he's able to take with this team, with Chris Paul and Kevin Durant, uh, Kevin and Devin Booker, excuse me, in the mix with him, it just makes his job that much easier. It allows for him to tap into some dynamics that he hasn't been accustomed to doing on high volume because of the structuring of the teams that he's played for. Uh, he's allowed to operate in manners that are more comfortable and that specifically on the playoff stage will allow for him to exert the least amount of energy. And when you talk about high volume shot takers, high volume shot makers, and high volume scorers in general, outside of getting to the free throw line, one of the best ways to conserve energy, which is, a, which is a dynamic that's important for all scorers, regardless of position, to do in the postseason. One of the best ways to do that is to get easy baskets. And the catch and shoot opportunities that Durant gets, which I've spoken on quite a bit since he's been with the Suns, the uptick there is, is going to be invaluable for him and for the Suns. But in addition to that, it's going to be Kevin Durant's inverting 
of the Suns' offense. He likes to operate from the from the block as well as the mid post, and sometimes even from the elbow in isolation. It allows for him to be a, a playmaking hub in addition to also being a scoring hub because he's always going to attract the attention of multiple defenders. So naturally, that puts him in a position to dictate things on the offensive side, whether he decides to attack the side that a, a, a double-teaming defender might be coming from, the opposite side of that, decides to go quick, or decides to, like we spoke on when he came to Chicago for the Bulls game, get those passes off in a timely manner so that he allows for his teammates to play within the advantage that's created off of his touching of the basketball. And kind of looking at that and looking at some of his numbers specifically, working from the post and um, using his stature to his advantage. So, he, of course, yeah, he's a seven-footer. He might actually even be seven-one in basketball shoes. But one of the ways that he conser- conserves his energy consistently is by holding his position in the post to where he's within range, to where he can either turn over a shoulder or sweep through in triple threat and just pull up with no dribbles. The no-dribble pull-up for Kevin Durant is a dagger. It's one of the most efficient shots in the NBA in isolation, and it just grows even more profound and proficient in the postseason. And specifically via that shot, post-All-Star break as a Phoenix Sun, He's knocking that shot down at an incredible 57.9% from two. And again, he's taking that shot, only 2.4 attempts. I imagine that shot on volume is going to go up more, which naturally will even out some of the efficiency. But the the effect is going to remain nonetheless. Him being able to get that shot up, especially when I would say 90% of the time, the person that's defending him is not the same stature as him height-wise and can't always contest his release point is going to be a dynamic to watch for in this series because if he's scoring easy baskets and not exerting himself in terms of putting the ball in the deck that frequently it could potentially be a long series or a long night excuse me for whoever the defenders that might be guarding him from the Clippers might be and that's a perfect segue into looking at the matchups part of it because the Clippers while they have a ton of wings they don't necessarily have a ton that are equipped with the requisites to guard a player the stature of Kevin Durant. Obviously, the most the most frequent name we'll see used with guarding Durant will be Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi only runs at 6'7", six, six, however. His wingspan that is wide-ranging and stretches well past seven feet allows for him to contest frequently, as well as his stature in terms of his strength and ability to absorb hits to the chest and move his feet and stay solid with his foundation and not get not marked off of his knocked off of his mark. That's something that Kawhi excels at. So Durant specifically with Kawhi Leonard on him would be a matchup to watch because those no dribble pull-ups will be a little bit more difficult to navigate. But of course, this is Kevin Durant that we're speaking on. So he'll be able to get those shots off. Um, it's just a matter of how much will a player like Kawhi Leonard be able to affect those shots. And in a similar vein, not being the tallest per se, but having a wide-ranging wingspan is Nicholas Batum. Now, Batum is not as strong in his foundation or in the upper body as Kawhi Leonard is, but he has that wingspan that might be just as long, if not longer, than Kawhi Leonard's. So where if Durant does get into the no-dribble pull-up and gets a shoulder or elbow into the chest, while Batum might not be able to absorb the hit in the way that Kawhi Leonard can, he'll still be able to get up a feasible and viable contest. Uh, on said shots. So looking at specifically Kawhi Leonard and Nicholas Batum, those two guard will most likely be the two Clippers that spend the most time 
containing Kevin Durant on an individual perspective. It won't always be single coverage as they're sure to send double teams, like I mentioned, from the baseline, from the first pass away, from the opposite 45, kind of keeping those toggling between who and where the double teams are coming from to keep Kevin Durant honest as a playmaker and just to keep him honest in his discernment and decision-making um, in terms of chess, kind of looking at the matchup within the matchup and things like that. Nonetheless, outside of those two in primary containment of Durant, we will also see a little bit of Terrence Mann in the game from November where the Brooklyn Nets were going against the Clippers in Los Angeles. Terrence Mann was able to get a handful of reps in guarding Kevin Durant as well. It's important to make note that Kawhi Leonard was not available in this game. And initially it started with Marcus Moore Sr. having the, the Kevin Durant matchup and then kind of trickled down into a little bit of Paul George, a little bit of Terrence Mann, a little bit of Batum. Uh, they just kind of kept up kept a carousel, if you will, of different players, different style matchups and different styles of coverage on Kevin Durant, specifically on these mid-post and elbow and low block touches. Um, and then also who we didn't see guarding Durant that I can remember in that game will be a player of the likes of Robert Covington. Now, they typically use him when they go small ball to guard the opposing five if a team decides to go with the traditional lineup against their small ball because Rocco can hold his own on the block and that also makes any types of pick and roll or any types of screens where the five is setting the screen, they also automatically become a switch. And Robert can do a great job uh, containing the ball in isolation and just generally staying in front of his man when he's out on the perimeter. So that gives them a little bit of a wrinkle to use in a postseason setting, which, again, is important, especially when you have a, a coach the likes of Tyron Lue on your sideline, the tactician, and just a general – excellent and thorough game planner that he is always being overprepared and having his team ready to do the same. All right. That's enough on the Kevin Durant side of things. Let's kind of transition into looking at the, the Clippers guarding the Suns three player actions. So the Suns have a ton of different types of three player actions that they run from all three thirds of the floor, whether that be the outer thirds or the middle third. One thing that the Clippers love to do and that they've loved to do, especially against the, the Suns, is keep the Suns' actions on the outer thirds of the floor. So they go with a lot of coverage that's called ice or down or weak coverage. So each of those three are all very similar. They could be slightly different depending on the terminology and the way that the coach might decide to use it. But for a quick rundown, ice coverage is when, if you imagine Chris Paul, is on the outer third, and he's getting ready to receive a pick from DeAndre Ayton to get towards the middle third of the floor. You might hear Tyron Lue screaming, ice, ice, ice. When you hear ice, that means that the person that's guarding Chris Paul is going to turn and induce for him to go and stay towards the sideline and keep him from using the screen and going over it into the middle third. And by the same measure, if you look at weak coverage, weak coverage is ice, but it's just flipped to keep a player on the outer third, but also keep them to using their weak hand as the one that they're dribbling with. So if you imagine Chris Paul is on the left side of the floor and he's trying to get a screen from DeAndre Aiden to get to his right hand, you might see Terrence Mann jump to the screen side and force Chris Paul and funnel him towards that outer third to keep him with the ball in his left hand. And in those scenarios, it's just a way of kind of slowing down the pace of pick and roll, which aids the defense. And 
kind of in that scenario, a lot of times this is where Chris Paul's next level thinking and navigating the screens comes into play because he'll get into snaking the screen, which is him just kind of splitting the drop defender or the bottom defender who's guarding DeAndre Ayton, kind of split him and then get back towards the middle third as a way of kind of undoing that coverage. Um, that's just kind of a dive into those things and downing it would just be ice or weak coverage. But instead of just keeping it towards the outer third, also having it funneled to where the big man and the person that's guarding CP3 will kind of converge and pushing that towards the corner. So kind of downing, taking it from that top third and moving it towards the bottom third of the floor into the corners and using the sideline as an extra defender. Kind of like a trap, kind of like putting two to the ball, but it's a little bit more soft in its nature versus being a flat out like blitzing of a ball handler, if you will. But kind of bringing it back to the three player actions, looking at those, I'm curious as to how the Suns would go about navigating those specific sets because the Clippers like to switch a lot one through four and especially one through five when they go with their small ball variants. So looking at, say, if they're going with their Chicago action, they might decide to switch all three of those players in that action as they go from the down screen into the dribble handoff. If that all gets switched and the action gets flattened out, it's all going to come down to a matter of how quickly do the Suns go about getting to the next thing and not letting the switching slow down the pace and flow of whatever action it is that they might be trying to run on any given rep. And also looking at how DeAndre Aiden or Jock Landale, or even if it might be Kevin Durant, that might be setting a screen or even Josh Okoji at times or Tory Craig, how quickly can they flip their hips and undo the switching by slipping the screens or ghosting screens? Kevin Durant would be the one of those names that I mentioned, which would be good at ghosting or popping, basically setting a fake screen and then floating out to space on the other side of the action to kind of get a reaction advantage or just generally keep their pace and flow within that, within those sets and within those little micro actions that they like to run. I'm going to be curious to see how they go about running those pet plays that they like to get into, those quick hitters, uh, whether that be 77 as well, uh, some of their veer action where they get a pick on ball that's immediately followed by a screen or down screen of some nature uh, for a shooter to come off of. Or even if it's, um, like we mentioned, with the Spain. I'm just curious how these dynamics play out over the course of the series. Of course, they won't look the same every time. And, of course, the personnel pairings won't also always be the same either. But it's just going to be fun to kind of see that game within the game and that chess in real time kind of play out for the Suns going against these Clippers. Also, in addition to that, I'm curious as to how one of the Suns' pet plays that they kind of established into the fold in the last third of the season um, being their two-up motion play. I'm curious as to how that would look when the Clippers decide to switch all of that action as well. So for the two-up motion look, imagine it's typically Josh Koji who's initiating in this play, and they're in their horns alignment. So they have, let's say, DeAndre Aiden at the left block, and let's say for the sake of this example is Devin Booker at the right block. So we would see a dribble handoff from Josh Koji to Devin Booker at the top of the key. That's going to then flow into a pick from DeAndre Ayton for Devin Booker going to his left hand. And then it's going to flow into the corner. And let's say that's Kevin Durant. So initially, usually they'll go into a dribble handoff exchange between Devin Booker and Kevin Durant as he lifts up from the corner. And that dribble handoff will then be followed by a second screen from DeAndre Ayton, who's kind of hanging out around the elbow area of the floor. 
I'm curious as to how that set looks against the Clippers when they decide to switch it all. And what other wrinkles the Suns can get into within that action to manipulate different types of reaction advantages or spacing advantages um, to play out of in that scenario. Again, that's another quick hitter of theirs. It's just a motion play to kind of get them flowing and to toggle some of their defensive responsibilities. But when they're switching involved and they're switching with the likes of the personnel that the Clippers do have at their disposal, I'm just curious how that kind of plays out. Also, kind of looking at other matchups for the Suns. So something that we saw in the regular season series is that at times we would see players like um, Zubac might come out after a timeout and he might be guarding somebody like Josh Okoji. And by nature of that, it would be somebody like Terrence Mann or like I mentioned earlier, Robert Covington, who's guarding a big man. And let's say that might be DeAndre Ayton, or let's say that might be Jock Landale. If that's Robert Covington, all screens and all different types of quick hitters the Suns like to get into will automatically become switches. So I'm curious just seeing how that dynamic plays out as well, as well as the small ball for the Suns. We haven't seen that much of Kevin Durant at the five, but a direct counter to uh, any type of small ball that the Suns, the Suns might see or the Suns might want to use um, is going to be using Kevin Durant as that center. And obviously that gives you five out spacing that gives you switching one through five. And it just gives you a different type of outlook on offense and defense. So just kind of looking at that and seeing how and when, if Monty decides to use that small ball variant, how often he does and when does he use it? Because if he uses it to dictate things in terms of let's see what we get out of the Clippers and if they can match up with this for stretches of the game, that would be like an ultimate trump card that we don't have any true minutes or film on to kind of assess things from. And it will also be a way of just putting the, the Clippers in a compromising situation because even with their small ball lineups, that means they would have to put players out there like maybe uh, Eric Gordon or maybe a Bones Highland that aren't their best perimeter defenders. And that puts them in a compromising situation because now you have to switch because it's small ball. And in addition to that, you don't have, you know, your best defenders out there. So that's a way that the Suns can certainly dictate things in terms of using their lineup versatility to their advantage. And now as we kind of transition to looking at a few things on the Clippers side of it all, I want to make note of the fact that post All-Star break, they were at 40.3% in their catch and shoots. So as a team, they shot 40.3% from three on catch and shoots post All-Star break. That is a very efficient number. That was third in the NBA post All-Star break, and that was tied with the Phoenix Suns, actually. Um, they took about, about a shot, almost a shot and a half more in terms of the catch and shoot volume than the Suns did. Nonetheless, they're extremely proficient at playing off of the extra attention or the advantages in general that Kawhi Leonard can create, whether he's operating from the elbow in isolation, coming off of a screen, playing off of the low block, and operating in some of the spaces similar to what Kevin Durant does on there, just inversely for themselves. Um, and just kind of zooming in a little bit more on their specific numbers per player in catch and shoot scenarios post All-Star break, Robert Covington was at 65.4% on 2.2 attempts. Kawhi Leonard was at 48.1% on three attempts a game. Eric Gordon, on four and a half attempts a game, was at 42.2%. Nicholas Batum, 4.3 attempts, 42.2%. Terrence Mann, only 1.8 attempts, but 42.1%. 
And then they had players like Bones Highland, who's taking three and a half a game. And he was at 35.7%. Norman Powell on a similar volume at 3.4 was at 35.3%. So having such a glut of players that they can rely on and knock these shots down consistently is going to put the Suns in a situation where they have to be disciplined with their closeouts, closing out long, closing out running guys off the three-point line, but also be a discipline to A, not foul, because, again, the Suns were the worst at fouling in general and putting themselves in those situations where the free throw discrepancy becomes a a factor at the end of games. So being able to close out consistently and run guys off of the three-point line, get up true contests, but also be under control enough to to rotate and not just run the guy off the three-point line, but be able to close and recover and to be able to contain the ball in that scenario. It's going to be a kind of game within the game to gauge because if the Suns can keep their defensive shell intact consistently, I truly feel that there is no real avenue for the Clippers to beat this team uh, to the sprints of four games over the course of a series. So if they can control their controllables and being disciplined specifically um, in fundamentals, but also in the game plan with closing out to these shooters that I just spoke on, I think that could be something where they could really tilt this scale heavily in their favor. Um, And then outside of the catch and shoots for this Clippers team, who's proficient there, Uh, I also wanted to kind of give a look at who might actually guard Kawhi Leonard because for as much as we talked about who's going to guard Kevin Durant and all of these things, a good question for the Suns is who's going to guard Kawhi Leonard. And I think, of course, just like for Durant, it's going to be a a team thing for one. But in addition to that, the individuals that will be tasked with containing the ball primarily before any help gets involved, I think that puts players like Kevin Durant, who is no slouch defensively, in isolation or just an individual containment of the ball. And he likes to step up and take these challenges. Obviously you don't want him to do it for 48 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever volume of minutes he might be playing on a game by game basis, because you want him to have more energy on offense. However, he's not scared and he's more than capable of defending a player like Kawhi Leonard, um, whether it be via switches or if he just decides to take that matchup outright. Um, Kevin Durant has the requisite stature to affect the type of shots and the shot profile that Kawhi Leonard likes in terms of getting into the body of guys and then getting into turnarounds from the block, from the post, from the elbow. Um, Kevin Durant is a perfect player to guard a player like Kawhi Leonard who doesn't necessarily work in space consistently. So that's a dynamic to look at. I also like Josh Okoji's chances in guarding Kawhi Leonard. It's a different respect in terms of where he's guarding him at because, of course, Josh is used to guarding in space more than he is in the post. But we saw him get the job done operating against the likes of a Lowry Markkinen or Giannis Antetokounmpo down the stretch uh, post-All-Star break. And he did a fairly solid job guarding the post and guarding the isolation in the condensed court scenarios where it's more so about stature than it is about athleticism and being able to slide laterally. Outside of Koji, we saw Torrey Craig getting a lot of those reps as well in terms of guarding that specific scenario. And even past Torrey Craig, a player like Ish Wainwright, is, a, is one that I'm going to keep in my back pocket as well because his minutes in terms of the volume that he'll get and the consistent the consistency is not necessarily set in stone. It might be kind of up in the air, just kind of depending on what each individual game or situation might bring to the fold or might demand for the Suns. But I could see times where Ish might get a five or six-minute stretch or a four or five-minute stretch in place of a Josh Okoji while Torrey Craig might be on the floor with the reserve unit just to spell someone from Kevin Durant 
having a guard the likes of Kawhi Leonard and just being able to hold down the fort because in those same situations that I've that I mentioned with Koji, we also saw Ish getting those same type of reps against the likes of Larry Markkinen and against the likes of Giannis Antetokounmpo and even a player like Chris Middleton in those said games as well. So I'm curious to see how those matchups go. And then the last one to kind of round out this Sun study with Steven is looking at how the Suns decide to guard Russell Westbrook. So much has been made about the ineptness and the inconsistencies that Russell Westbrook has in terms of being a threat outside of the three-point line in terms of catch and shoot or shooting off the dribble and things of that nature. In that, we've seen a lot of different types of matchups, matchup tactics and um, just kind of coaching chess that we've seen from teams like, let's say, the Golden State Warriors, where they elected to put Draymond Green on Russell Westbrook. And that's not that's not foreign for the Warriors to do because what they like to do is have Draymond, if he's not involved directly in actions, stash him on players that are non-shooters so that he could kind of condense the court on primary actions and on primary ball handlers and players and use them as a help defender while he's also uh, being an anchor for the second side of defenses and calling out sets and actions, playing in the passing lanes and being in closeout scenarios. For the Suns, a player that could operate in a manner similar to that. And again, it depends on how the lineups and rotations are staggered. But I can see somebody like Kevin Durant, who's been in scenarios and situations where he's had to anchor switching defenses from the second side, who's also adept at operating as um, a secondary rim protector. I could see situations where he might be guarding Russell Westbrook intentionally because he can help off of that. And then he can show with gap help and nail help and things like that on a player like Kawhi Leonard on the strong side, he could put his length there and that makes the passing angles as well as the driving angles a lot tougher to navigate and just generally see around a player that's seven, seven foot one with a seven, five, seven, six wingspan. And shout out my guy, Yemi, because our conversation just kind of spiraled into that. Um, I had the idea of the Suns putting DeAndre Aiden on Russell Westbrook and kind of having him just kind of play as a helper and kind of always be near the paint 290 and ready for loading up and extra help to show at the rim and things of that nature. But Yemi came to me with the counter of putting Kevin Durant in that scenario. And though I do favor the the DeAndre Aiden dynamic of that matchup, I could definitely see scenarios where the Suns would experiment with putting Kevin Durant in that position as well. And I think both would be proficient in that specific that setting and situation as well, just because of the athleticism and the versatility that those two have. I'm just curious to see if Monty pushes that button and when he decides to push that button. And I mean, I guess one last thing kind of looking at Russ and even looking at Terrence Mann is the fact that the Clippers love to use those two as screeners. Because that puts them in situations where now their lack of spacing or if they're if you're playing off of them as a defense, you have to guard them because they're involved directly in the action with, say, Kawhi Leonard or Norman Powell or Eric Gordon or a player of, of that nature for the for the Clippers. So looking at Russell Westbrook and Terrence Mann screening, especially in waning moments of games where they need a basket, whether that's to get a switch or whether that's to play within the switch, like I mentioned with the Suns and for the for the Clippers this time, getting downhill, getting those two players to play in an advantage off of the short roll, whether they're creating for themselves and playing in the paint or if they're playmaking off of that, being a connector 
from the middle of the floor with an advantage. Seeing how the Suns kind of navigate those matchups and what types of strings Monty Williams and company decide to pull as they engage in chess warfare on this playoff stage with Tyron Lou and Lawrence Frank and company. Uh, it's going to be fun to see. So uh, without further ado, this is the first episode of the Sun Study with Steven. This was fun. I'm looking forward to tapping in a lot more. It's going to be a fun series. It's going to be a lot of fun to just gauge the intricacies and the little things that are going to come up over the course of this series and just seeing how both teams' dynamics play out. So I appreciate y'all for tapping in as listeners. We appreciate your continued support on our page and on our feed. And, you know, let's, let's enjoy this playoff basketball.